Okay. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 5th of July. Happy July 4th to everybody. Tammy and Andy <laughs> especially. How's it going? <laughs> I don't know if especially is the right word, but happy 4th of July. What did you guys do for 4th of July? Uh, I, I came down to my... Yeah. Oh, you did? I didn't see any. Yeah. We didn't expect it. It was just so loud. that We went, we went outside and saw them. But uh, and my daughter went crazy. So, um, yeah, people on our Discord were saying, if you have dogs, fireworks drive your dogs crazy. So I guess everyone with dogs was commiserating over how horrible it was. Yeah. That happens every year. Tammy, back up from your microphone a little bit. Oh, um, sorry. The, uh, we had, I went to a campground and borrowed my parents' conversion van to see if I could, you know, have a, I was testing out. Oh, how life. was it? Well, the van is cool. They but, have a nice one, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, they have a, yeah, they have like your standard sprinter van that, yeah, that like, uh, retirees buy, you know? And so they, uh, I tried it out. It was pretty cool, but we left in the middle because, uh, I don't know. I started getting worried that everyone around us in the campfire ground was going to start setting off fireworks. And uh, I didn't want to like be stuck in a van listening to fireworks all night. So we drove back. And, <laughs> what? Um, oh, no. Yeah, it was only 40 minutes away. There's actually a oh, campground okay. in Oakland between Oakland and Castro Valley. That's beautiful. I had no oh, idea God. it existed. Yeah, and it's incredibly well maintained thanks to the amazing East Bay Parks Commission, which uh, I don't know. I feel like we could do an entire episode oh on. Oh my god! Wait, I need to get the details boring. on that place yeah. for my road trip. Wait. Um, okay. Also celebrating a birthday <laughs> was the <laughs> was the CCP. So happy hundredth <laughs> birthday to the CCP, Andy. Like what? Like what is this? I imagine that it's a big deal, yeah. right? The hundredth anniversary of the CCP. So like, what what's going on? It's kind of uh, there was a huge ceremony last week. It's kind of this. It's not like that big of a national holiday, but I think they made it one because it's the 100-year one. Um, the CCP kind of gets started with just like a ragtag group of people in 1921. And then um, apparently they didn't even know the date like this meeting took place. So they just started saying July 1. That's not actually that, that's not the actual <laughs> date. Um, obviously, it was like a, you know, just mostly like a pretense or a occasion for Xi Jinping to deliver this massive speech. Um, and the thing that kind of caught people's attention for a few days was, you know, he gives this long speech about kind of like the state of the union and how China's rising and, um, you know, foreign powers should be, should not try to intervene and bully China. And he gives a line where he says something like, um, if they try to intervene with China, they will run into an iron steel, a steel great wall uh, made up of 1.4 billion people. And, the Chinese, there's a Chinese phrase uses uses uh, which literally translates to heads will be broken and blood will flow, right? <laughs> but then the question becomes like, how do you translate this? Because it's, it's, it's just a proverb. And on China Twitter, there became this interesting, I don't know if it's interesting, it's kind of a big discussion. Well, do you translate it literally as like, China will like murder you and your family, you know? Um, and, and that would play up the kind of China's <laughs> this existential military threat to the free world kind of uh, message that a lot of you know China watchers want these days. 
or belief in these days. And then a lot of people, it kind of became not exclusively, but kind of racialized where the, a lot of Chinese speakers or native Chinese commentators would say, no, that's just a regular phrase. And you wouldn't translate um, an English phrase like killing it, you know, or something like, or right. like as literally yeah. as like a military threat. But what about the steel? What about the steel uh, iron wall thing? I mean, is that a threat? Um, that sounds somewhat imposing too. It, it's a threat against your own people to use them as a yeah, I know, right? To like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, listen, I'm throwing all the bodies in front of <laughs> yeah. the bodies into a giant steel wall. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, no, it's. I mean, a lot of people are like, well, that's not the real point. Like, the real point is there's that. There's the line about being bullied and how China really runs with yeah. this bullying metaphor. Um, so the New York Times translated that one line as uh, whoever comes into China will crack their heads and spill blood. So they actually ran with it. And then the the, the, the official English translation from the Chinese government was they mm-hmm. will find themselves on a collision course, which sounds completely mm. neutral and benign. So, Well, is it the kind of expression you would use in daily life? I mean, like, do you use, would you use it to like shit talk someone before a basketball <laughs> game? Like, like how common yeah, of a phrase? I think it? if I did that, that would be um, probably crossing a line. Um, I mean, I had never okay. seen this phrase, but when I've read it, like literally when I look at it on the one hand, like, yes, this literally means, I almost feel like the best translation is like heads will, heads will roll. Heads will like roll. in English, yeah, would yeah. You, if someone says heads will roll, if the U.S. president said heads will roll, would you? Yeah, that would be pretty imposed. That would be pretty You think bad that'd be bad? If Biden, oh yeah. yeah, Biden said heads will roll. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be crazy. But wouldn't people be like, oh, that's just a phrase in English. Like he didn't, Biden didn't come up with that phrase. No, I don't think but it, it is a phrase, like, but it still means yeah. heads will roll. I, I don't know. Say. It doesn't seem as benign as like, you know, like if somebody was going to say like, oh, the French soccer team before every match sings this extremely violent song, which happens to also be the French national anthem. Yeah. Like, have you ever read the words of the French national anthem? It's fucking crazy. No, what does it say? It's like, all. it's so violent. <laughs> it's about like rivers of blood running through the, uh... through the, uh, through the streets, all this sort of beheadings, all this sort of stuff is yeah. in it. And they sing it, yeah. you know? I mean, it is the <laughs> verses that are not, you know, they're like secret verses of it that are just right. like so violent. But I even the even the one that they sing is violent, yeah. and that would be that would be. This seems a little yeah. bit more intense than that. Yeah, right? I actually outsourced this to some of our Discord members who are in China, and they were like, "Yeah, they think it's more than benign, but probably not super threatening." China. I mean, I think the my takeaway after like going back and forth on this was like. I feel like at this point, people, nobody's changing each other's minds. Like people who have a certain view of China as this huge threat um, yeah. appropriately read this as this huge threat, like China watchers, like people in US and European publications and political science departments, basically. And then those of us who are not like China apologists, but are wary of Western portrayals of China are like, uh, you know, maybe not, it's, it's more complicated than that. There's something else, uh, there's something else at work here. So I don't know. I kind of feel like this is almost we're getting it to the point where like nobody is changing each other's minds, and I, I almost wonder if like Xi Jinping like has a burner account on Twitter and is like and is like intentionally <laughs> using the, the, this vague language to set off China Twitter. <laughs> he's like tweeting at yeah, he's tweeting at the G seven leaders <laughs> like at Angela Merkel. <laughs> <and just being> like, <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty. 
That would be an amazing Ashley Feinberg. Uh, <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Changing his Wikipedia. I account. found Xi Jinping's secret partner. <laughs> oh man, that would get a lot of views, I think. Um, okay. Well, uh, speaking of international politics, um, again, happy birthday to the CCP, I guess, right? Um, although not really their birthday because nobody knows if it was it's like actually July 23rd or something. Approximately. Yes, July, okay. So upcoming, the real birthday. Um, I don't know. We wanted to talk. We have a dual sports thing today, but neither of the topics are actually about sports. The first is this big controversy that happened in the world of track and field. Um, I don't know why I just said the world of track. I feel like Al, like, like, a sports like Al Michaels or something. Yeah. <laughs> today, NBC Sports Minute. Today in the world of track and field. Uh, Shakari Richardson, as most of you must know, must know at this point, who is a 100-meter Dash Sprinter, who, you know, I think captured the, I'm using another sports <laughs> metaphor. This he really amazing. captured, captured the, the imagination. Yeah, captured the hearts and minds of Americans when she ran, uh, you know, in the U.S. Olympic qualifying trials and sort of pulled up and did a Usain Bolt type of thing where she started pointing at the clock, pointing at her time before she followed, before she finished the race. It was awesome, you know, <laughs> and I understand why people... Yeah. Uh, felt and then she followed it up with an interview where she talked about how she had learned how her mother biological mother had just died uh, from a reporter you know and that had been a difficult time for her and um, you know it's like everything that wow. sort of Olympics mm-hmm. porn type of stuff loves you know <laughs> mm-hmm. sports porn in general right like kind of like this overcoming story tragedy and then champion, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you just imagine the world has changed because of this thing. Now, and then she got caught uh, at, with marijuana in her system, right? Mm-hmm. And she came out, she apologized. She said that uh, she had done it because uh, she was trying to deal with the death of her mother. And that, um, and, you know, in the state of Oregon where these things were ran, it's legal. You know, and she had, but she also had known that she shouldn't be, you know, that it was against the rules and that this might happen. And so it seems like she's not going to be able to run in the 100 meter dash at the Olympics in Tokyo. And that set off a whole round of anger, which I think is justified, you know, because I think this is like absolute bullshit that, you know, the Olympics are like, first of all, like, yes. Did she break a rule that existed? Yes. You know, like, uh, is it fair to allow her to run and just not have the rule exist anymore? I don't see a scenario where that could happen. Is a rule stupid? Yes. It's like extremely stupid, you know, and the justifications for the rules are like, basically like, Oh, well, you know, weed can be a performance enhancing drug because it decreases stress or something like that. <laughs> so I think insane. Like, right. Right. Or, and then there was this thing like, and this is the part where I think our conversation will go off of there like well it does not show like the moral character that like the olympics embodied and that's where you your eyes roll out of your head (laughs) just like okay so we wanted to talk about the olympics in general this week and you know i don't know like i basically have gotten to the point where i just think that the olympics probably you know like there's i understand the excitement of it i understand that like uh people like to watch these things i I do like watching two weeks of the Olympics. You know, I like watching like yeah. weightlifting and shit like that. You know, like it's exciting <laughs> to me. But it's like it is it is so morally repulsive at this point. Like it, I feel like it's more morally repulsive than 
all the American sports put together. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. like if you put together like the NCAA and like, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, I don't know, like what else is in a, like boxing and mixed martial Football, arts and yeah. the NFL, you know, <laughs> and the NBA, you know, like you put all those together, baseball, and it's like one tenth of as gross as the Olympics. I don't know. How do you guys feel? Well, how does it rank with FIFA? Because that's another problematic well, yeah. national one, yeah. right? But yeah. yeah, FIFA and the Olympics are like neck and neck. Yes, <laughs> Although maybe the Olympics are worse. So uh, we wanted to do a bit of history about the Olympics. And Tammy, I don't know, like you, you looked into this a bit. Like what, like what, what are we talking about when we talk about the Olympics? I think people's perception of it, not everyone, but a lot of people, and I think especially a lot of people listening to this show might not have this perception. But I think that some people think that it starts in like, Greece when like the man throws the first discus <laughs> yeah. you know and and then the man runs from like wherever to marathon and then right, right, promptly right, dies marathon. right and then <laughs> and then from there on like four every four years like people you know take a long boat you know from Norway to Greece to compete <laughs> in the in the in the Olympic Games or something like that that's obviously not true so like what, what would you find about this yeah sure so you know i think i've been paying attention to the olympics a lot more as an adult like in terms of people's resistance to it in various cities which is usually around like housing displacement environmental issues i mean we could talk about like the corruption and all the money that's involved in this stuff um for years um and then of course like with shakari richardson's case like the abuse of individual athletes and all this stuff but i you know there's also of course like the kind of you know, Lenny Riefenstahl, like Nazi eugenics type histories that are also wrapped into the Olympics. And um, so, uh, you know, one of the things I guess I would say two things, I've I read a couple of pieces about like kind of when the Olympics started getting into this really like corrupt, like money focused thing. And there's a um, sort of sports historian called Andrew Zimbalist who has written about this and talks about how um, the 70s marked a turning point. So I'll just read a little bit of that. Um, so he writes... Well, the summary of his his argument is basically that the games were growing rapidly in the 70s, with the number of Summer Olympics participants almost doubling and the number of events increasing by a third during the 60s. Every Olympics since 1960 has seen major cost overruns, sometimes to the tune of like 700%. Like Sochi, I think, cost $50 billion. Um, The killing of protesters in the days before the 68 Mexico City Games and the fatal assault on Israeli athletes at the 72 Munich Games tarnished the image of the Olympics and public skepticism of taking on debt to host the Games grew, which also tells you that this this thing is a bit episodic. There are times when there's kind of more scrutiny and more public outcry and, and less. Um, For example, in 72, Denver became the first and only chosen host city to reject its Olympics after voters passed a referendum refusing additional public spending for the games, which I found really interesting. Wow. Yeah. And then kind of going further back, um, you know. What's the um, deal with that? They did six. er, So Mexico City was 68 and 72 was Denver. Well, then eventually Munich, right? Yeah. What's the deal? I wonder why. Those are like both extremely high elevation cities maybe it helps the discus or something like that <laughs> amazing job have you ever thrown a discus at a mile high a mile above elevation it's amazing anyway tammy i apologize Go ahead. no no i yeah you know it's interesting too because this week i a friend in colorado was telling me how they've also had these kind of public referendums to ban amazon from building different facilities in in different areas of Colorado. So there's some sort of history in Colorado with these really locally based like 
referenda against public incursion or sorry, yeah. um, corporate incursion into public funds. So I think that's really interesting to follow up on. Um, so that's, that's kind of like the, the kind of public spending piece. And then, um, you know, being like interesting in Korea, yeah. I was also interested in a history of, you know, um, the Olympics just being involved in, yeah, so much corruption with like different dictators and authoritarian leaders. Um, there's a sports historian called Brett Hutchins who wrote for a Nordic sports science website that Andy dug up. Um, and he does a review of some of the longest term IOC presidents. And one of the longest term presidents is somebody who was the president when we were all coming of age. So starting in 80, this guy Juan Antonio Samarank, which I think we remember, who's a Spaniard. Um, and this historian writes, Samarank maintained his authoritarian tendencies as IOC president, insisting on being addressed as his excellency. <laughs> he oversaw <laughs> the admission of IOC members such as the Ugandan Frank Nangueso, a former Olympic boxer and army commander and chief of staff under the dictator Idi Amin. Another figure who rose to IOC vice president under Samarank is the South Korean Kim Un-yong. A leading figure in international taekwondo, Dr. Kim, was once a South Korean intelligence operative who served in the security forces of Park wow. Jong-hee, who is the murderous dictator of two decades under in Korean development. So anyway, so yeah, just kind of picking up on, on this kind of historical piece, like there is not this kind of beautiful legacy as Jay was mapping from like Athens into all of this, this four-year pattern, but rather like a lineage of like this kind of racist and sort of authoritarian exceptionalism that arises with every bit of the Olympic Games. Well, for Korea, because Korea is seen as one of the great successes, yeah. right, of the Olympics in terms of economics. And like, I think that some cities, like, it's just a disaster and everybody now agrees it's a disaster, right? Um, and we're talking here about the Summer Olympics. I think that the Winter Olympics is probably yeah. destructive in some ways, but I think it's much smaller. And so I think Definitely. that uh, it's, you know, but the Summer Olympics, which is where you're tons of people come in where you have to build 5,000 new stadiums or something like that, right? Like in Brazil, for example, I think it's pretty much like agreed upon by everybody mm. who's reasonable that this is a disaster. <laughs> but I also think that the general consensus says that like, uh, that Korea is the big success story because, you know, this is like the marker. Yeah. Cause it's like the sort of, I'm, I'm not saying that I think <laughs> this, I, I actually don't know. I'm just saying that like within Korea, but also I think within the international community, there's a lot of thought like, Oh, this marked Korea's like real arrival as like a first world economic definitely. power. Do you know? Yeah, it was definitely billed by the regime at the time as like Korea's developmental coming out party. Did you know right? that um, this is like anecdotal Korean history, but um, I guess like this was like also like the big turning point where South Korea takes definitely takes lead from like North Korea as the more powerful, richer country. Right. And yeah. North Korea actually offered to co-host the Olympics up until like that same year because they were worried that they knew that if they didn't, like if South Korea had a successful Olympics, that would be like the end of North Korea in terms of being like this competitive power on par with South Korea. And obviously South Korea said, no, I didn't know that. I, I like, I, you know, obviously in the U S we kind of think of North Korea as this like crazy hermit kingdom, but it was actually like yeah. more of a model for the rest of the like socialist third world up until the seventies and eighties. So the Olympics kind of has a big role in, in like the Korea's history in that sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Um, that was part of it. Too. I mean, so like, like, is it not Tammy? Like, was it not the beginning of Korea's entrance to the, to the stage? Cause I think that that most, if you ask most Koreans in America mm -hmm. or in Korea, that they would say that that's true in the same yeah. way that 
Um, I don't know. I think Beijing. You know, it's such a mo- it's such a moment. Yeah, right, moment right, right, right. We're be- Beijing yeah. too. Mm-hmm. We're gonna talk about Beijing in a bit because, like, you know, I, <laughs> that I, was so big. Yeah. yeah um, think- is it not? Well, so I think definitely what you said is totally true in terms of general public perception and certainly the story that the state wants to tell about itself with regard to Korea. Um, But I think like the same kind of patterns we see about like, you know, community resistance and like the actual after effects were are totally the same. So, for instance, like. I guess about 10 years after the Olympics, I was in Korea staying in like one of the Olympic hotels and it was basically about to collapse because like all of the stuff they did for the Olympics was completely like quick mm-hmm. build, displace all of the right. poor people who live in those areas and like build, like everything they built was like horrible. Yeah. And like, um, and so, you know, that you still see like some of the, the places that existed, but they're all just like these crumbling concrete messes and so i think there are real questions about you know yes it was symbolically important but what what is the kind of legacy of that like the legacy actually is that the government could get away through these various like international gestures of like abusing its populace without much accountability and then and what about what about this other argument though tammy that like in 88 the um that essentially outside of like economic and housing things right that this was basically South Korea's, as Andy said, disentanglement from North Korea, right? That it was a time where it was like, we're going to be like a worldwide globalist international democracy. And that, um, you know, from then on, there's no looking back because like South Korea becomes like a big country in the world because it has hosted the Olympics. Mm. Like that I find a little bit more convincing, you know? Um, I don't know if like the yeah. money coming in because of the... Olympics themselves supercharges the economy or anything like that. I agree. I've been down. I went down to Olympic village too. I mean, it was a ghost (laughs) town and like everything's kind of falling apart, but like, that's one thing, but you know, having a country that now can sort of compete economically that people have to take seriously, but Mm -hmm. also has, is now billing itself as this uh, democracy after, as you said, you know, 20 years of military dictatorship, Um, you know, is that meaningful? I, I think it's I think it's a mixed bag on that count too for, for so it was already I think by the mid seventies that South Korea had taken over North Korea and GDP and it was kind of clearly like now on the stage to you know on the world stage um, and, and you know the during the Olympics like it was um, No Tewu who was presiding over it who you know so we were out of the Park Jong-hee presidency and No Tewu was the first democratically elected person um, even though he was like a huge disappointment in the election because he was like sort of a dictator too, but he was democratically elected. Um, so it's, it's sort of unclear whether the Olympics was, was like a kind of like, what is the symptom and what right. is the actual Causing thing? Effect, right. Yeah. You know, like, it seems like basically that stuff was already kind of in place and like, was it, was the Olympics in fact, like too much of a cover for president? No, like that's a question actually. So, um, so I don't know. I think it's, I think it's still a question mark. The, the, okay. The yeah. No, I, I, I don't doubt it. The Soul 88 mascot. I feel like that's one of the better mascots that I've been remembered. <laughs> the tiger. Odori? Am I wrong? Yeah. I don't know. I have like good memories of that. Or- <laughs> no, he's great. He's great. Yeah. My my cousins, some member of her family, I think on her father's side, owns like the the restaurant a restaurant. In oh LA. really? Yeah. <laughs> that's so cute. <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean in eight I I I do think that like I don't know. I mean like it's hard to tell. And yeah, I just it think is. It, it is a little bit hard to argue that it didn't allow for Korea to participate in global economics on a greater scale. Now, whether or not you think that's a good thing or, 
or a bad thing is up for debate, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I imagine that it had some effect in that. But yeah, I agree that I think that, you know, at that, it's not like basically a, co- a country holds the Olympics and is birthed into a new country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. sort of, it is like a coming out party right. for things that already are happening. And now if it accelerates or decelerates certain things, that has to be balanced against the actual cost of hosting this yeah. thing, you know? And, yeah, I mean, the Olympics um, are kind of like... It also exposed the world to the great Korean tradition of insane corruption <laughs> through boxing judging. <laughs> that was, yeah, there were a couple of matches there. Uh, yeah, it was yeah, revisited yeah. Um, in the 2002 World Cup when like Korea made it oh, to the yeah. semifinals or something yeah. on a on just a string of outrageous calls. <laughs> Is that right? Oh, oh yeah, it was outrageous. I couldn't quite remember. I remember there was something about that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was like a magic in Spain or something where they just kept like it was like it was it was, it was ex- like basically it was uh, <laughs> stretching one's disbelief, you know, where it's just like, oh, I didn't God. want it to be true, obviously, because at the time I was just like, oh, I want Korea to do well, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it was just like absurd. <laughs> now, now in retrospect, <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God. That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, yeah. But like these um, Olympics, it sounds like from the history, you know, starting like 1896, right? They had like the same, they came from like the same place that like, the World Fairs came from, you know, like the Chicago World Fair, the St. Louis. Right, of course. And yep. those World Fairs are kind of gone now, but like those are basically occasions for like global trade or like global business, like connections to be made. So like, yeah, it makes sense that these Olympics are always seen as great networking opportunities for these countries. Um, and in a way, I don't know how many Olympics can be thought of this way, but if you think about like the first Tokyo Olympics, 64, that is the moment in Japanese history when like they're having the Japanese miracle. It's kind of appropriate that yeah. they are the country that gets to host it that year. Um, and there's a kind of like a sad sort of like, uh, like second time is a farce kind of thing going on with Tokyo this time around because Tokyo yeah. right. wanted yeah, this Olympics to rejuvenate the economy. And now it's just, obviously it's, it's not turned out uh, as they hoped. And it's, yeah. You know, uh, you know, we talked about I talked about Chelsea a little bit about a month ago. Like nobody in Japan wants this. Like all right. the polls suggest they right, want right. This. Great segue, Andy, <laughs> <laughs> to the second half of our conversation on the Olympics, yeah. which is oh, that was masterful. You guys are all about the segues today. I know, I know. This Happy is, this is the smoothest our show has ever. It's not just me being like, okay, that's good. Let's move on to the next topic. <laughs> Um, yeah. So in Japan right now, it seems you know, this is from a Washington Post article that uh, there's a poll out in Japan that said 83 percent of the population oppose it. Now, I don't know if that's a true poll or not, but it also seems like all the other polls, while not as high, do show that yeah. a majority of the country yeah. doesn't want this. What, what doesn't want this Olympics? So what what's going on there, Andy? I mean, I think I, I feel like. The talk. This, I first became conscious of people hating the Olympics when I was in New York, and there was talk of this crazy idea of the New York of New York hosting it, and New Yorkers not wanting it. And it's probably true. It's probably been true for several decades, like Tammy just mentioned, that no city wants no city's residents wants to host it. It's really the mm-hmm. government, business elite, people who want the networking opportunities and the symbolism who want the Olympics. But local residents know right. it's probably get the sense that it's going to be. A nightmare probably these are cities where any big city most big cities around the world already have like traffic transportation infrastructure problems and they can only imagine how much Seriously. worse like can you imagine hosting in new york city so i think a lot of people in tokyo are like yeah boston did the same thing boston 
rejected it, right? I think Boston. Yeah, I mean, every... um, I can't imagine Boston's such a small yeah. city. Too. Yeah, I just like why, why would you do it in Boston? Have, <laughs> you're gonna have like the gymnastics and Framingham or something like that. It just makes. I mean, they. I'm sure they would have had to because like it's not. It's not yeah, big exactly. enough. So yeah, anyway, yeah. So in Tokyo, which is a very big city, in fact, I it is a big city, and in, city in a way, they could world. probably pull it off. But mm-hmm. it's already a city that's been that's packed to the maximum in terms of stretching. Right the transportation and space you know like at various moments tokyo land has been the most expensive land in the world you know and people can yeah right you know like 100 miles to work and back with a bullet train so you know there isn't a lot of spare land just lying around um so there's that and there's also the covid angle that they don't have it Mm -hmm. under control they aren't vaccinated so why invite you know not to be like xenophobic but why invite people from all over the world to come in and and hang out um, in a city where I think, I think the numbers are like twenties, thirties, maybe for maybe just for the elderly. I think the majority of Tokyo is not vaccinated. The vax, yeah. right? Do you guys? Because you guys were generally supportive of the NBA bubble, or maybe <laughs> at least surprised. No, we weren't. I was well, definitely not supportive of the NBA. Bubble. Okay, you supportive the isn't the right word. You guys, you guys watched a lot of. I supported it, it through <laughs> watching it on television. Okay, you watched a lot of it on television. Maybe that's what I mistook for support. But I guess better than, um, better than so travel. because the yeah. the Tokyo, yeah, like the Tokyo people, they're basically promising to do the same thing, right? So, what do you guys think about that? Having witnessed the NBA part of that. Uh, there's just so many more people. Yeah. I But I also think like, you know, I think that the risk is much lower now, to be very honest, you know, like just to being realistic about it. It's like, yes, where there is a worldwide pandemic, it is bad in other countries. But yeah. I imagine that a lot of these athletes will be vaccinated. And um, I don't believe that they're going to be able to create the bubble that the NBA created because it's just so many more people, yeah. so much more media, everything mm-hmm. like that. But um, I also think that the risk of it is probably like i don't know it's not like it was last winter you know when they did the nba bubble uh or last fall i'm sorry like it's the our knowledge of the of the disease or treatments of it everything like that have improved and so it doesn't seem as crazy to me you know but at the same time like if they're like we're gonna have the olympics in the bay area I would be like, absolutely not, you know, and, and there's no other concern except coronavirus. I would be like, no, <laughs> you know? like, why, why, you know, they're like, well, there's no traffic. Uh, the economic cost is the same. We're going to have like the track meet around Golden Gate Fields. They're just going to run where the horses run and it's going to be fine. I'd be like, no, <laughs> our numbers are great right now. Yeah. You know, I don't want to have to worry about coronavirus again. So yeah, no, I, I, I think that, but I don't know, is it, is it unreasonable to be like, well, I don't know. It it's 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 not like it was if they had done it like last summer, that would have been absolutely right. crazy, right? But mm-hmm. maybe enough time has passed where some of the risk is mitigated. Somebody's gonna get mad at yeah. me in the Discord. <laughs> I think I think I think the bubble <laughs> makes sense, but I do think that therefore it really makes the Olympics completely pointless for people in Japan. They will not because mm-hmm. I remember last year mm-hmm. there there were yeah. these articles. Wait, can they not go? They yeah, they can't go. Um, right? If they do the bubble, don't you think it'll be really restricted? But but I would say, like, I remember last year when it seemed like the Olympics were happening, there were these articles on domestic airlines um, having all these travel programs for visitors to go from Tokyo, to, from Tokyo to all around Japan. So much of Japan these days relies on tourism as part of as their economic yeah. boost. And if we're making the Olympics basically a TV studio 
you know, and, and not a like mm-hmm. forum for meeting and travel, then they're not going to get the economic boost, you know, that, that they hope for when they wanted to host it. They right. wanted people to go to like yeah. Kyoto and visit like, you know, like right. Heian era architecture, right? Like that, totally. I'm sure some people do that anyway, but like they really wanted to, to be like, a real, you know, a real boost to the economy. I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't like, so you're not going to be allowed basically to go there and then go to Kyoto and eat in a restaurant and then go to watch gymnastics and then take the train to Tokyo and, you know, go to a bar or something like that and eat some noodles and then <laughs> watch mean, track. The, like, I don't know what the actual rules are, but to the extent they are trying to minimize um, the impact okay. of COVID, right? Yeah, that's, I don't think that's, to the same degree they're limiting COVID, to the same degree they're limiting, you know, the the boost of foreign mm-hmm. tourism. Okay, well, I'll cancel my tickets then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I wasn't going to go yeah. to the Olympics. Um, the uh, the okay. Well, then the other event, like, there's something that also happens, which, and I think this is where we can talk about the housing part, you know, which is that like uh, Dave Zirin, I believe, with uh with um is it oh, it's Jules Boykoff, Boykoff uh, mm-hmm. wrote this article about how Tokyo had gotten this is in the this is in the nation and mm-hmm. um you know they tell this story about this guy actually you know what? I'm sorry this is in Reuters um uh how this guy named Kohei Jin Jino was uh, evicted from his (laughs) Mm -hmm. in 1964. He was evicted from his house to make the national stadium for the Tokyo Olympics, and then he was evicted again (laughs) just now. You know, to in 2013, 2013, yeah, yeah, at the age of 80, (laughs) so that they could make the stadium for this one. And he is just kind of like, listen, (laughs) 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 once is fine, but twice is too much. And apparently they gave him like uh, 1500 bucks to to get out of his place and that the cost of move was like that's that that part of it, I think, is the real concern in terms of like what's happening in Los Angeles. Right. And right right now there is a I don't know if it's a big movement, but I would certainly say it's organized and it's a vocal movement to oppose the Olympic Games mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. It's called No Olympics LA. Um, and, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of people working on it, including, you know, a friend of mine from Grantland, Molly Lambert. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, I find their position to be like totally unassailable in a lot of ways, right? Like <laughs> yeah. the ways in which Los Angeles is organizing the Olympics right now, like it's everything that you would think that Los Angeles would do, right? displacing people in East Los Angeles, displacing people in poor places, clearing out the homeless, right, which is obviously a huge problem and um, in Los Angeles right now. And that, you know, the way that the government is looking at it is like, we have to solve the homeless problem because of the Olympics coming, right? And then what does that mean? That means we're not actually trying to solve the homeless problem. We just want them <laughs> yeah. not here, right? right? It means like, we're going to ship them all in a bus to like San Bernardino or something like that and just let them off. And, you know, they're San Bernardino's problem right now from now on. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. Like, I, Tim, what do you think about this thing with in L.A.? Yeah, I, I'm really glad that your friend is involved in it. I don't know anyone who's directly involved, but I certainly feel like in, in any conversation I have with people doing housing down there, it comes up, you know, as something right. they're thinking about. And as you were just saying, very emblematic of the sort of like backroom dealings, public monies being sent to corporations and developers that they've been fighting against, you know, in other contexts. So, I mean, I think 
it just seems really challenging because obviously they do have the deal to go ahead and do the Olympics, you know, in 2028. And so I'm really curious, like one of the goals I read on on their website was to convene these kind of public forums where they would basically force accountability, you know, along the way, if it does go forward, obviously they don't want it to go forward. Um, but yeah, I'm really curious what that would look like. And if, if that would establish any sort of precedent, you know, in, in the kind of negotiation process, but it's it's a huge undertaking. Um, I, I, have you heard from Molly about it, like recently? Kind yeah, of like well, not recently, is? but yeah, about a year yeah. ago, like she sent, started sending me the um, the materials for it, right? And their yeah. general argument, I think, is essentially that look, and Los Angeles has a history of this with the building of Dodger Stadium, right? Like say. my friend Eric Nussbaum wrote a great book about it that oh, cool. everyone should read. Um, and like, uh, it's a uh, you know. So when they built Dodger Stadium, they basically took an entire neighborhood and displaced it, you know. And so I think that Dodger Stadium is the most beautiful baseball stadium in America and perhaps the most beautiful stadium in the world, you know, like oh, in terms wow. of the view you have, I the see. sort of it's like, you know, it doesn't even feel like you're in Los Angeles. The colors are nice. You know, you have a huge like sort of multi-ethnic crowd. It's cool. And yet, like the history of it is essentially that they took, uh, you know, Mexican-American families just displaced an entire neighborhood and yeah. just like, fuck you. Right. And so with that history that a lot of people in Los Angeles know that a lot of people in Los Angeles, you know, people and their family live through. Right. Like this is this is like uniquely traumatic, I think, and mm-hmm. that they sort of know we already know how this story goes. Right. Like <laughs> we know who you're going to target. Like, you know, like for the Olympics, what does L.A. want? Like, what does, Car- you know, Garcetti want? Not Car- Car- Garcetti. <laughs> I've been Tom watching the Wire season five <laughs> for no reason. Tommy Garcetti. <laughs> I watched, I've been watching the Wire season five in this like totally insane way, which is a new way that I watch TV. What I do watch TV is that I just fast forward through entire plot lines. And so anytime they... They, what? they go to the uh, to the newspaper. I just I put in I just like skip forward. And so the only part and then even oh like some of the, even some of the cop stuff. So it was just basically I just watch it to see what Marlo does. And so <laughs> each episode takes like 20 minutes. And then I'm done with it. That is horrible. It's <laughs> like, I don't care. You need the remote control. Yeah, the ball, I don't care. No, no, I've gotten excellent at fast forward. You don't like the newspaper scenes? Oh, my no, God. No, no, the newspaper scenes are so bad. <laughs> I love them. Um, <laughs> Um, I will say that on second viewing, um, even in this crazy way, I don't think that the fifth season of The Wire is as bad as everyone says. Yeah, I think that's fine. You know, I liked yeah. it. I do Worse think it than... is David Simon gr- grinding some axes against like yeah. the Baltimore Sun. And, yes. you know, but that's yeah. fine. You know, yeah. it doesn't mean it's bad. It's just that he was grinding some axes. But what those axes are, I have no idea because I didn't watch a single scene involving. <laughs> um, Wait. So I thought that I have a question. I don't know LA well at yeah. all. I think it was, I kind of think it, there's an idea in my head, it might be from Bill Simmons, that LA is like the perfect city for the Olympics because it already has all the infrastructure from, I guess, 84 slash all their 10 right. sports teams. That if they were to, and we might be like getting ahead of ourselves in terms of like, should we have the Olympics? Should it just be in one place? But if there were to be one place, mm-hmm. LA is probably more equipped than other cities to host it that's the idea i have in my head is that is that not the case more so than boston for sure Sure. and more so than brazil was at the time you know to host the world cup and the olympics um yeah like like, their argument is that coliseum exists yeah the rams are building that giant thing in uh what's it called in uh in inglewood right um 
there's basketball arenas, Staples Center there's exists. There's like all of SoCal. Uh, to, I mean, there's other parts of SoCal they could use too. To spread out. In right, there. right. You can even go down to San Diego. Like there are all, all sorts of places that you can It's on the water. Um, it's temperate. It's or, yeah, kind of, not, not too hot. <laughs> Right, you don't have to build like climate zone. Remember, like in, there was that one Olympic slash World Cup site that was in the jungle. I think it's called like Manaus or something like that. And like it was so hot that they had oh to basically God. air condition the entire. They had to basically build an entire cool zone bubble for everybody. That's so um, fun. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But you know, I do think that in cleaning up for the Olympics, what does right. that mean, right? Um, and that's where like sort of the terror begins. I think for people. Yeah. It's just like, all right, well, what it, what is deemed unsightly, mm-hmm. you know, when Ellie's mm-hmm. like, well, we need to like put on our best face for the world. What does that mean? Um, well, it means like basically, you know, cleaning up sex work. It means cleaning up homeless. It means basically Skid Row is probably going to be completely taken away, you know, and or at least temporarily taken away. Right. And it also means that like they have to build housing, right? They have to build places for yeah. these Olympic athletes to live. They have to live the media, everybody who comes in, they have to build stuff for them, which happens in every city that hosts the Olympics, regardless of who they are. Right. I'm sure it happened in Beijing, which is, you know, also a gigantic yeah. city. Um, and uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't yeah. think that like, I don't know what that benefit to LA would be at this point of hosting the Olympics anyway. Right. And so when you have all these effects, then you basically have what the Olympics is, which is this top down thing that nobody really wants, that nobody cares about too much, except for people watching on television where they can watch on television anywhere. Right. And the people who are in power in those places so that they can have like a big accomplishment under their belt. Well, and I think the strain on on public transit and especially and. I mean, the transit infrastructure generally in LA would is something else that activists are really concerned about because it's obviously so, you know, clogged up and has been, obviously that's like a longstanding reputation, but now also with the environment, you know, and the fires and everything, I think it's like all of a piece where it just feels like residents are so overwhelmed, feeling pushed out, feeling completely, yeah. you know, overtaken by the conditions of the air and yeah. water. And then they're thinking about this whole, you know, project, like what is that going to do to us? Yeah. Um, so- Yes, I, I, it I, sounds um, like from your, what you were saying earlier, Tammy, that the Olympics may, might have been manageable at some point, but has begun to spiral, began to spiral out of control in the 70s. Like what is like there's, you know, there's a lot of implication in a lot of this reporting that this is very undemocratic, that these countries make these bids in a very corrupt manner. And that actually once they sign these contracts, you know, like Chelsea mentioned, like Japan has like no sovereignty right now. Like they can't say no to the Olympics. They have to, like the Olympic committee has said something like, we'll take into consideration the public um, dissatisfaction with the Olympics, but we're going to have it anyway. Mm -hmm. Like what is the, like what is the engine behind all this? Like why, because, you know, like if you just want to have a bunch of sporting events on TV, you could do that on a college campus. You know, it doesn't have to be, quite to this scale. Right. So I guess the question is like, yeah. why does it have to be this big? What is the incentive for the IOC or any of these countries to host these things? Is it just this kind of very antiquated idea of having world fairs as a sort of like economic boost, which just kind of seems anachronistic in 2021. You like people don't need world fairs mm-hmm. to learn about the rest of the world. Right. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I, don't I don't know what know. you I guys think, think that remember when we talked about that Foxconn thing in Wisconsin, yeah. 
and corporate subsidies generally and, you know, why cities give billions of dollars to the richest people in the world to bring in quote unquote jobs and development. It's like the Dodger Stadium thing on complete steroids in the big tech economy. And it seems like when you line up like the IOC and FIFA and then the international financial institutions of the 80s and 90s and all of these kind of corporate subsidy deals that have been proliferating since the 70s, you just get this picture of potentially well-meaning bureaucrats who like may actually believe that this is good economically, but there's absolutely no evidence that that's true. You know, there isn't any consistent like body of (laughs) economic or sociological or other data on the benefits of this stuff. So I don't, yeah, it's like, I mean, I think like Boykoff and other people who like do the history of the Olympics are like, how do we literally have the same story every four years for a hundred years? Yeah. It must be like nostalgia for like quote unquote good Olympics in the past. I guess. Or like soft power. Right. Yeah. Like, cause I would say that like, you know, I think that many people, I'll throw myself in here when they watch the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, you're like, Oh my God, (laughs) what is this? I've never seen anything like this. It was, you know, uh, very cool. Right. (laughs) And then you see like the bird's nest stadium and you're like, this thing is sweet. And now of course the bird's nest stadium is falling apart. They don't use it for anything. And, um, yeah, and it's like uh, parts of it are like falling off every day, but who cares in <laughs> some ways, right? It's, but but in terms of, I do think that if your aim is to make your country seem as powerful and as like cool as yeah. possible, then perhaps the Olympics are a good thing. Now, you know, I think that on this show, we would agree that it's not a good thing to make your country <laughs> yeah. seem as cool and powerful as possible. <laughs> but I do think that powerful people do want that, you know, and I think that that's yeah. sort of the incentive. Yeah. It's uh, it's a, it's like the ultimate nationalism. Sure. I mean, think about South Korea, like Koreans still talk about 88 as yeah. being this seminal moment. Right. Yeah. And I think in China, do they talk about the 2000, what year 08. was it? 2004 08. or something like that. Oh, eight Olympics yeah. as being like that big of a, uh, I don't know if they like talk about occasion. it on a, daily basis but i think in like i I was like reading about the history of china the last you know 20 30 years and 08 was this kind of high point um also before the 08 financial crisis where things have kind of become a lot more complex since then but 08 that summer did seem to kind of entrance the world and entrance like china to thinking like you know Mm -hmm. to, to being very optimistic about the future um yeah, I mean, I think and just even thinking about like Taiwan, yeah. Taiwan will host these events I've never heard of, right? But they're like these international amateur <laughs> sporting events and it's all over the news um, because Taiwan is just like really happy mm-hmm. and proud to like host something, you know, along this. So I can only imagine what it's like on a bigger scale for a bigger country to hold uh, the actual Olympics. You know, it's like a real moment of pride, yeah. projection. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean... It, it does. It does seem kind of and like the sports themselves. I don't know how you feel about how you two feel about this. It's always bizarre to be like an anti-imperialist and then to watch the Olympics and think about like, <laughs> who do I cheer for right now? Like I, I, I it's almost kind of because you know, like I watch basketball and like this is kind of a joke. The United States basketball team. It's they basically invented the sport, you know. And like, how do you do you cheer for the U.S.? Well, you're just basically cheering for like Goliath at that point every single time. But right. it's also like a cool all-star event where you get to watch like these guys play along with each other, each other for the first time. But when they like eke out a close victory in the gold medal game, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm like, eh, maybe it's just the ancient of right, so, I don't know. But I don't, do people really, I don't know if people care. I think that people mostly watch the Olympics for 
uh, the Summer Olympics for track and field gymnastics. Yeah. I think basketball is probably not that big. Yeah, of not a since '92, right? Deal. Mm-hmm. And then they sometimes get into like random sports. Like when I got into super into weightlifting. <laughs> weightlifting was amazing to watch, by the way. But like, um, or like badminton or something like that. They're having surfing, I think, in Tokyo for the first time, which is like so oh, wow. stupid. Yeah, but and they're gonna have skateboarding. And then um, I think in the next Olympics, they're going to have breakdancing, which I actually am uh, excited about. <laughs> I have to admit. <laughs> um, yeah, they're going to have breakdancing, which I, I think will be cool. But the full like, J Korean nationalism is going to come out. Right. No, actually, I don't think I'm going to. I don't think I'll. I'm not going to root for Korea in that. But yeah, I agree that um, Korea is very good at archery, I think. Yeah. Right. Yes. That's like their thing. Um, and short track speeds, James. I was going to say short track. Too. I remember <laughs> yeah. curling. That what we had a little curling uh, moment. Do you, okay, so are the, is there like all right? Let's let's assume two things here then, in the wrapping up this conversation. Let's assume that people do like watching the Olympics. I think that's true. I think people do yeah. like mm-hmm. watching the Olympics, right? Um, that people do want to, there to be some like quadrant. Is that the right word for every four years uh, competition in which people are. <laughs> from around the world are going to compete with each other because we do want to see if Simone Biles is the best in the world, right? Simone Biles is like thrilling to watch. And, um, you know, we want her to have some competition where she proves she's the best in the world, even though I don't know if she needs to prove that at this point, but let's pretend she did. Um, (laughs) Is there something that could not be the Olympics? Like, Andy, you pulled this, you know, in Switzerland in 2003, they had the Wrestling and Alpine Festival. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but they, they 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 made a temporary thirty thousand seat venue, right? That uh, basically, you know, was kind of yeah. low low impact, right? right? They could yeah. build it and tear it down. Like, what what's the what's what's the way to how do we fix the Olympics so that it's not so destructive and such a show of nationalism and everything like that, but still allows people to watch? I don't know, like you know, equestrian and rowing if yeah. they want. I mean, this, these are articles that Tammy pulled, and I think these are the two. The two logical solutions are (laughs) like build these stadiums with the goal of tearing them apart a few months later, rather than spend millions to upkeep, you know, Um, or the other one is hold them in the same city every single time. Um, Right. I think both of these make a lot of sense. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I have a suggestion for the place (laughs) to put it in all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah, Are you ready? Eugene, Oregon. (laughs) No, I'm serious because like, yeah, because you already have the track and field stuff Mm -hmm. there, right? Right. You have Nike, just make Nike pay for it, right? Nike would love to host the Olympics all the time. Right, just have it They've already taken over the U of O system. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know. (laughs) But like if Nike is hemorrhaging money every four years to try and put this thing on, you know? That's hilarious. Like then that then that's no real impact to the people in no. there right i like eugene look i understand that we're in an ecological really crisis and everything <laughs> like that but it's not like the area it's not like eugene is a place <laughs> where there's nothing around there where you could build a couple extra buildings right you can yeah, do that yeah. in eugene um there's like empty space around eugene and you know I don't know. It, Eugene is far enough from Portland, I think, that if all this really was was basically media and athletes coming in and you stripped out all of the like kind of like silly, yeah. you know, uh, like global economy stuff, then I don't actually think it would be that invasive. That right? is so specific. Yeah, I love it. No, I think it, I think it's right. <laughs> just do it in Eugene. Like that's that's a cent- that's the center of the track and field world anyway. And track and field is like yeah. the biggest thing in the yeah. Summer Olympics. You so know, um, yeah, yeah it would just be basically like hosting the NCAA 
you know, title yeah. tournament. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. But much bigger. You know, (laughs) and then you would strip out all this absurdity about amateurism, you know, if it was basically just like Nike, (laughs) it would, it would, you wouldn't just be like, listen, this is a giant Nike ad and will I watch it? Yeah, probably, you know, but, um, you know, but I think that the grotesqueness of it would actually be appropriate for, you know, the history of the Olympics. That's my idea. You guys have a better idea than that. I think my as a location, even though I haven't heard this article brought up uh, Athens (laughs) as a historical reason, you know, and also like the Greek economy has been shit for a long time, so maybe they could benefit. Um, So I guess resurrect the 2004 games. That makes sense. It's so hot there, though. Oh my god, it's very Eurocentric. I don't know. Maybe like really intense there. The first world and the third world should trade like every other year or every other Olympics. Um. Yeah, <laughs> I know the developing world economy, the developing economy stuff is so interesting. Like, have you guys ever heard the argument that the Olympics are are sort of good for developing country economies because, like, the IOC money does get into like developing country sports right. programs? But like, Brazil is so bad, right? Uh, like, it just seems like such like, like such a bad idea the whole way. Right. I know. Um. Okay. Eugene. All right. Eugene. That's our idea. Just do it in Eugene and do it every two years. I yeah. don't like this every four IOC, years. IOC, if you need a proposal. It's sort of like that Oregon right. Shakespeare You've come to the right place. Is that in Eugene? Yeah, in Ashland. Oh, in Ashland. Yeah. yeah. You could do it at the same time. <laughs> Shakespeare. And... Yeah, Shakespeare. And, and, you can have uh, a tourism loop around Oregon. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like this is a good idea. Also, the University of Oregon uh, in the summer wouldn't be in um, session. Right. Yeah. And you yeah. could just have the athletes live in the student dorms. Boom. Another benefit <laughs> that I just thought. Dang, student Jay, dorm. you like right. I've, I've got this all thought out. <laughs> yeah. You got the IOC. You can steal my idea if you want. I won't be too mad. All right. <laughs> Second topic, also tangentially about sports, is uh, there is an article put out in the Times uh, yesterday, I would say. I think it was yesterday. It was written by Kevin Draper. Um, formerly of Deadspin, and Kevin wrote a piece that about a video call that, uh, you know, that was recorded in sort of a strange way in which uh, Rachel Nichols, who is the host of The Jump and is sort of an ESPN personality, mostly around the NBA, uh, she also had her own CNN show for a while, right? So I think Rachel mm-hmm. Nichols about 47 years old, and she, um, you know, she was thought she was not being recorded anymore. And she's called up this guy, uh, Mendelssohn. This Mendelssohn guy is LeBron James's publicist and is sort of like a crisis PR person. And um, the reason why Rachel Nichols knows Mendelssohn is because, you know, like she needs, she's a reporter. She's a journalist in the NBA. She is a big profile person, probably one of the biggest profile NBA journalists. And she needs to know people like Mendelssohn. In the course of their conversation, she starts complaining because a uh, woman named Maria Taylor, who is a very big up-and-coming star at ESPN, uh, and again, for some context, this is July of 2020, so it's right in the middle of like all the stuff around Floyd. Um, mm-hmm. She uh, says that, oh, well, uh, Maria Taylor is going to replace me in the NBA Finals, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, or like, and her quote is that, uh, you know, I think that Maria Taylor is great, but uh, if ESPN is going to be doing this diversity stuff, which they've been messing up for so long, and I know about this because I know it from the woman's side of it, that they're not going to take it from me, 
right? Mm -hmm. And so this is sort of the explosive quote. There are other couple explosive quotes mostly attributed to Mendelssohn, which he says, like, between me too and Black Lives Matter, I've got nothing left. And then they both laugh, right? And um, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the third thing that she says is that uh, she was talking about ESPN at the same time. And she says, those same people who are like generally white conservative male Trump voters is part of the reason I've had a hard time at ESPN. I basically finally just outworked everyone for so long that they had to recognize it. I don't want to then be a victim of them trying to play catch up for the same damage that affected me in the first place. You know what I mean? So I'm just trying to be nice. Right now, this set off like a year long conflict internally at ESPN. Maria Taylor uh, got and many other employees got a got a screenshot basically of this. Right. Like somebody recorded the screen and was distributing this video around. Um, and uh, Maria Taylor, I think justifiably basically just like I'm not working with Rachel Nichols anymore. Right. And so then ESPN had to do all the shuffling to make it so that it didn't seem like this conflict existed. And then it finally boiled over. Maria Taylor is like uh, basically done with an ESPN contract that pays her a million bucks a year. And what she wanted was eight million dollars a year. And so a lot of this is around her contract negotiations as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know, Tammy. And like this is basic. I, everyone knows this. I don't know why I repeated the entire story, because it's the only thing that's been on Twitter for the last day outside of like firework. You know, my dog is scared of fireworks again. <laughs> and then the next four tweets are like, fuck Rachel Nichols. Terry, you know? <laughs> what do you think about this? Yeah, so I'm totally an outsider to this, except that I've heard for years that ESPN is a really awful place for women and people of color to work. So, yeah, that's something I wanted to know from you guys about, like, whether this is surprising, whether this is just like... It's getting a lot of press, but it's actually totally indicative of stuff that happens every day. Um, it's funny because when I when I started reading the piece in the Times, I expected all of the worst stuff to be from Nichols, mm -hmm. but I actually found Mendelssohn's quotes to be a lot more offensive. Right. So I was kind of curious yeah. about that because it's completely posed as this like white woman versus black woman thing, but also, you know, it's actually more just about like who holds, you know, like Mendelssohn seems like this incredibly powerful guy who's like interjecting these absurd comments, you know. So, um, yeah, I guess I was surprised and then also wondering if, yeah, maybe it's not that surprising. Um, and, then, you know, I think some of the stuff like the critique of US ESPN as an institution by Nichols seemed yeah. true. Right. Right. It's a complicated. I, I don't know. I saw my friends yesterday that it was complicated and not complicated, but. Before that, Andy, I mean, you're familiar with the work of Rachel Nichols as an NBA yeah. fan. Like, what, what do you, what do you I think? I think, well, I told my friends I'm ready to hate on Rachel, but actually did not think that her quotes here were as bad as like the headlines were like getting me prepared to, to hate on her for. I yeah. actually, my takeaway was like, there must be stuff we don't know that's not reported because I do feel like the quotes could be spun in a way that are not that bad. But then given it's probably something about the actual like day-to-day -day relationships between these people um, that made them uh, huh. think. What do you mean? Though? Because I think what she says at face value is like not that controversial. Like, of course, yes, man thinks of its talent in terms of man, woman, white, black, you know, player, not player and all that stuff. Um, right. And in a way that's kind of, I mean, and then, and, and and she like does all the even when she's being recorded in private, she does she does all the polite you know this is not about her this is about the bosses, this is not about her personally this is about the corporate structure and so on, and I feel like there's a legitimate way if you if one liked Rachel Nichols if her colleagues really liked her 
they could read it in a charitable way. I think they read it in a different way because they probably, I assume because there's also stuff, other stuff going on in terms of feeling like mm. she um, is not that supportive or, you know, is. Hmm. Oh, Rachel yeah. Nichols. Oh, so you're talking about like the other people on the show, like Steve, like Adrian. Was yeah. Right, so that was the other part of the article. Uh, Jalen Rose. Jay, yeah. Maria Jay Taylor, Williams, Jalen the, Rose, yeah, Jay Williams. Right. And they will, this was the other kind of like, opening anecdote that like the other other people on the show almost walked off the show or whatever last month right right and Woj told her she was wrote Woj told Rachel Nichols you're being a bad TV <laughs> which is like the only funny part of the entire article but there's a there's also and then you know the other thing that we should point out which I think is the one thing that like you know is just unconscionable is that the only person yeah. who was punished in this entire fiasco was a producer on the show who was a black woman who took the video and showed it to uh, Maria Taylor and she got suspended for two weeks without pay and was demoted, you know? So it's not like an insignificant punishment. And Rachel was not punished. Although, yeah, I mean, people were speculating, like they maybe they wanted to punish Rachel, but they knew that she could sue them for like privacy violation or something like so. Right. Yeah. I think Mm -hmm. that, I don't Mm -hmm. think that you can really punish somebody when it's a private conversation. Right. Um, yeah, I, I worked at ESPN. You know, I have a lot of friends in sports media. I don't mean that to like name drop or whatever, but just as the context for the comments. And, you know, I, I think that the part that's complicated about this is that ESPN has been terrible about diversity, right? And that they basically say, well, we've got a bunch of ex-players on TV. What are you talking about, right? And um, and that ESPN is terrible with the, in dealing with women historically, right? Like mm-hmm. just like the most disgusting like that's basically what Deadspin was for 10 years was just detailing every single excessive thing that ESPN did. Yeah. And I don't think okay. that ESPN is clear of the, any of that stuff. I do think it's probably better, you know, in terms of at least pure representation mm-hmm. and maybe getting rid of some of like the fratty atmosphere that was at that, at that place. But you know, it's still ESPN. And I do think that when corporations do make moves in terms of diversity, quote unquote diversity, when they, especially when they feel pressured to do so, they, they do think of things as a zero sum game, especially with women in sports media, right? Like there are only so many jobs. And so if you're going to promote mm-hmm. someone, then the other person has to suffer. Meanwhile, there are tons of white men and ex-players who are just hanging around collecting paychecks at ESPN who never have to think about this stuff at all, right? Like they're fine. Right. And so it is reduced. Like what Rachel Nichols's assessment of this, I think, is correct in some ways. Right. Like it is a zero sum game for women in sports media. Right. And that Mm -hmm. um, that maybe it is unfair to her to if they want to promote Maria Taylor because they're feeling some sort of pressure from the Floyd protests that it would end up being uh, at her expense. Like I kind of get that. But at the same time, I think that this is also extremely uncomplicated in the sense that like. I don't know, like uh, this type of conversation. I think that's what most people are mad about. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's what actually Rachel Nichols said. I think it's basically when you're like a person of color, not to use that term, but you know, when you're not white and you, or you're a woman and you're entering into the sports media space or heavily male space, Mm -hmm. that basically what you're assuming is that all the other people are having this exact same conversation behind your back. You know, that like basically (laughs) what they're saying is like they will never, ever see you as anything other than a diversity hire. 
right? Yes. And that when Rachel Nichols' stepmother is fucking Diane Sawyer, yeah. you know, her stepfather is Mike Nichols, who is like the most famous director ever, yeah. you know, other than like Francis Ford Coppola or like Martin Scorsese or something like that, right? Like she is literal royalty in this space. And when half of her quotes are just like, I've worked so hard, you're, you're just like, okay, you don't get it. You know, like mm -hmm. you don't get why like a lot of people work hard. Right. And so then you expect what like if if you're one of the people who are in this space, if you're like not white and you're in media, the thing that you assume is that, A, everyone thinks you're a diversity hire, even yeah. if you're not like it doesn't matter how much more qualified you are. And secondly, the thing that you assume is that when white people who are powerful and rich get together, these are the types of conversations yeah. that they have, you know, like, yes. oh, what do we do about this invading horde of people? <laughs> right. And like that's what Rachel Nichols did. And I find that part to be completely on like uh uncomplicated yeah. mm -hmm. you know like that is and that's i think that's why people are so mad about it yeah. i think it's that part of it i don't think it's the actual quote about yeah. maria taylor mm -hmm. what do you think but would you be i mean are you surprised though i guess is the question like if no yeah. i'm not surprised right. no not at all but it's still like i don't think anyone who's mad is surprised no. either like, in fact i think most of them are not surprised right. but i i think it is a like you know right like uh being not surprised doesn't mean that you forgive the person right. who did it, right? Like, it just means that, like, the person who did it is the type of person who would have this conversation behind your back. Yeah. And that's the part, I don't know, I find that part to be kind of, like, I find that to be not nuanced. I, uh, <laughs> you know? right. I, I, I feel yeah. like in, in, my, in my, like, industry or career and in my employer, and I don't know if you'll think about your own, I would not be surprised if they had a conversation and they might have used really delicate phrasing, like we need more diversity in our faculty. So we should hire, you know, someone from this demographic, like, I would completely expect that conversation to have taken place. Now, I guess the context is, Rachel was trying to like, be negative about it rather than, you know, talking about hiring more diverse people, right? She was trying to say, <laughs> like, we should stop it. But um, that I don't, I would be completely accepting if i or i would expect that all of my i know but would you be happy about it i don't know because i think there's a tension here where i'm not and again we don't know what you know any of the actual people in espn think about this but like the conversation on social media was something like um people of color non-white black journalists are never seen as uh getting their jobs because of the work they did but only because of their color right and it seems like right. they're we're almost walking backwards into this fantasy of colorblind meritocracy, which we also no, I agree with that. Time, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a tension between saying like hire more non-white people at the same time as you only see me as a non-white person. Like it's well, it's all it's like basically saying like, look, if you do things for diversity, right, then you can't um, uh, you can't ever tell me that I was hired because of diversity. Yeah, right? but yeah, but mm -hmm. I. I think that's I think that that's different than what Rachel Nichols did. Like I think what Rachel Nichols is saying is not that they shouldn't be doing this. I think she's just basically being the most nimby-ish person sure, possible, yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, and be like, <laughs> do it, but not from me, you know. And you're just like, okay, then from right. who, you know? Like, and then she's like, and then that's where her point, where it's like, hey, why do you have to? Why does it have to be woman right. on woman? You know, like yeah. that, that's where it becomes a little more sympathetic, but. And um, I think, yeah. And I think I, that's why I think that there has to be some like broader context that's 
factoring the way, like, like you said, the context of her coming from everyone probably whispers behind her back about, they know she comes from this very connected, privileged um, background and that she may, I don't know, maybe like she, you know, maybe they feel like this is just like the latest in a series of her not being that as supportive as she could or something like that. Because I, like I said, like right. those comments in and of themselves well, right, are. I don't think we have to speculate on that. I don't. And Andy, if I knew something about it, I would just tell you privately, but yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's true or not true, you know? Um, but Tammy, what do you think about this journalism angle? Cause that was another thing that like kind of popped up in my head, which is like, this guy is basically a source, you know? And <laughs> know. he's not only a source, but he's also a source that Maria Taylor has to use, you exactly. know? And that's when I was just like, Jesus Christ, you know, like this sucks. Cause it's like, yeah. like who guess who else has to talk to LeBron? <laughs> Maria Taylor, you know, guess who else is like an NBA journalist, Maria Taylor. And you're, you're like basically burying her to like the most important person in terms of getting to LeBron James. Like totally. that's, I, I find that to be totally fucked up. Yeah. And I think maybe that's why his comments stuck out to me more than hers right. in a way, you know, cause it's like just this kind of slimy, like backdoor thing with, with this guy who, you know, you're supposed to have at least some sort of professional relationship with. And instead you're sort of bringing into the, on your side. You know? Right. And also like complaining about, like your own career stuff you know i just I know. can't imagine a world where i would do that like have you it's ever really... had a conversation with like that with a source before i mean I, I was trying to i mean you know to me it it also maybe is classic access journalism or when we critique access journalism right. this is exactly what we're talking about and then you use whatever like racial or class or gender you know sort of privileges you might have in different contexts and i think like as journalists we all do sort of play our hand as best we can, you know, but obviously there should be limits to that and, and you should like conduct yourself professionally. Have you ever um, bagged out another I mean, journalist that's a colleague though? Like that's a part that like, no, I know. It's, me. It's you know, like well, I said, I, like, do you, oh, do you really want to like, you know, be like do a piece with X instead of with, with me, yeah. you know, yeah. I've said that, but that's not a colleague, you know, and that's also <laughs> not something specific. It's just like a publication. That's the furthest I think I've gone. Yeah. Where I'm just like, well, you know, like, and I, I, I don't think I've even said that. I think what I've said is like, you know, like this would be a bigger platform than that. Like that's the, that's like the furthest I think that, right. that anyone yeah, yeah. should go. And even then I didn't feel particularly comfortable about it, but like, you know, to bag a colleague just seems yeah, totally. So you all felt like the, as as journalists, yeah, that was kind of like the third rail or the the line that she had crossed. Yeah. Oh yeah, way beyond. Yeah, way beyond. but at the same, I mean, I, I I guess I maybe it's just because I'm not really involved in kind of like White House reporting or sports reporting of the kind where I think like these sorts of conversations are had quite commonly. But I my like my impression was like I felt kind of disgusted by it, but at the same time I was like oh, perhaps this is actually yeah. quite common, and it's not just like the white people talking behind people's back thing, but like when you get into like a habit of access journals and maybe there is this kind of like throwing yeah. under the bus. I don't know. I think maybe, but I, 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 mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I worked in sports media for a while. Yeah. If you, I mean, yeah, I, you weren't I've, doing I've it. I've never seen, I'd never did this or yeah. anything close to it, yeah. but you know, I mean, I, I wasn't really talking to LeBron's to. publicist. I was talking to like Antoine James's publicist. <laughs> <laughs> or I was talking to like boxing promoters yeah. who, you know, you just assume that everything they say to you is a lie. <laughs> and so you can just like kind of laugh. You know? <laughs> right. So I was dealing with a much lower level of person. And so maybe that allowed me to not be like, you know, spill my guts all the time about it. But I don't know, like, you know, like, yeah. just have, I don't for that. I, I don't that 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 part just 
like that i guess that's the part where um i was the most upset andy i i didn't mean to like yeah. shut down your idea i agree with you that there needs to be some sort of like reckoning with like what do we how do we talk yeah. about this stuff if we're not gonna mm-hmm. like uh like if we agree that we should hire more people for diversity right, right? like I, I think that the base assumption should be that those people aren't therefore unqualified right, right, right. right? Um, yeah. like, but, but see, I, and I, so I, I think, I think literally she's that. not saying that, but I guess the implication could be right. I don't think yeah, she's saying right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. On, on the um, access point, on the access journalism point, you know, the, the outside perception, I don't, I don't know in, in any inside stuff, obviously is that ESPN and Rachel Nichols and several other journalists are seen as too cozy with some of the star players. Mm-hmm. And she's in the new space jam. Um, she, you know, or, I think she, she is Ernie's in the new space jam, you know, <laughs> oh my. And when I saw that, I was well, like, Ernie's... how are you a journalist? You're just... Oh, yeah. Ernie Johnson. I mean, Ernie Johnson's like, whatever, he's a host. But Ernie Johnson's yeah. not really... He's yeah, just yeah, a host, yeah. you know? He's He doesn't... He's like... And he's like... Yeah, he's almost like a traffic guard, right? <laughs> he's like the greatest traffic guard ever. He's but, so uh, good. That's what, um, that's what pissed off a lot of yeah. NBA fans from the strictly NBA perspective, right? Like, yeah. he's oh, always oh, pro really? LeBron. And this shows well, how, like, how friendly Well, the hosting versus... Yeah, isn't this what we talked about with the whole like Woj radio thing too, you know? Because I do think in sports radio at some point there seems to be this, like what you were just highlighting, like this host versus journalist divide, oh, yeah, which maybe yeah. is a broadcast thing generally in some ways, yeah. but you know. Which is why. Yeah, I, I, I think the this, lines this are blurrier. Like I think it's okay to blur the lines a little bit more mm-hmm. um, if you're like a big time TV person, you know? Mm-hmm. And your job is not necessarily to be a journalist, but your job right. is to yeah. present the league for a for a network that pays billions of dollars to broadcast <laughs> yeah. the league, right? Like it's a little different, and like yeah. I think that you can cut people a little bit of slack for not being like uh, totally rigorous when that is the relationship. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't know. I think that the focus of this for me was really just like, look, this is. Like everything you assume is true and everything that in your career that you've experienced is true, right? Of how people talk about you and how people see you as a problem. Yeah. Right. And how and how they'll ally with other powerful white people to uh, discuss you as yeah. a problem um, and how basically the core of white liberalism around race is essentially uh, this intense nimbyism, meaning like I will just say the right things, but I will never sacrifice a thing. That's all con- <laughs> yeah. confirmed. And I think that that's actually at the heart of a lot of what the ways in which people are frustrated with the way uh, with racial progress or social justice, whatever you want to call it in this country. Right. They're they're frustrated because they feel like the quote unquote allies are not real yeah. allies. And that like and that I think that's where people are mad yeah. about. Right. Mm. It's just like Rachel Nichols is like, you know, she has made her living covering a league that is black is black right. league. You know, like she does a show in which like she has ex players on the show and she needs those players to give her credibility to talk about these things. Right. And then in the end, like what you know, like what does she right. say behind and that, that that stuff is like I don't know. So, I I I, I find that the privacy concerns are very real. Yeah. You know, like I okay. So let's talk about that a bit. Andy, what were you going to no, say? No, just like to, maybe to rephrase what you're saying, or to you know, for me to kind of work it out in my head. The the bad thing wasn't so much the acknowledgement of how does like human resources juggle diversity hires. It was the way that it was kind of like the fact that it's all. 
that her, her ultimate conclusion was sort of like like a nimbyish conclusion, like like don't take my job, as opposed to talking about Maria Taylor as a diversity hire and how we need more diversity hires, and that's a good thing, you know. Like if like if if you heard your bosses talking about you as you know the the Korean hire, you know, but in a good way, as like oh you're, like we need more Korean writers, like <laughs> yeah, I would just quit. I would quit at that would, moment. Right? Yeah, I would quit at that moment. I just like really? fuck you. First of all, I'm not Korean, you know. Secondly, I mean, I am, <laughs> but like you know, it's weird to call me that. And secondly, what if they called you a POC, right? Um, yeah, I'd probably quit oh, wow. it too because it's like you don't like. I don't think that like like first of all, I find it like I do think there's a thing that's happening now, Tammy. I don't think it's happened to you, but we've talked about it where like basically every time something happens to Asians, they just ask me to write about it. <laughs> I'm so sick of it, you know, and it's like, it, like, I don't think that like, I think that that has been like a offshoot of sort of liberal corporate, liberal corporations or, you know, media companies basically covering their ass on stuff, right? Like, that's all it is, right? Like, you can't get canceled that the person who right, wrote the right, thing right. is of the same race as like the subject. Like, that's basically the rule. Yeah. And so that's what they're trying to avoid. It's a risk assessment thing. And so if they just come out and say that's what you are then, you know, that's not a good place to work. Now, that might, that coincides with me probably knowing that I am that person. Right, yeah. I was going to say, right. you probably know they're saying it, but you don't want right. to, but if I you heard it, hear it, it would change things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The there's this weird, like, yeah, there's this weird, like, it's a weird space. Tammy, I think you know what I'm talking about here. Like, it's like this weird space where you're just like, I know that this is happening. I know this is what yeah. you're saying, you know? And uh, this is the only way that I can be in this space at this yeah. level, you know, <laughs> and um, I don't know how to fix right. it, you know, because like yeah. I actually can't literally can literally not think of another person to the top of thing who is not thought of this in the same way, yeah. you know. And so, but <laughs> if you say, say it to my face, face then, <laughs> then I'm out of here. <laughs> But like, but I think that's what people are so mad about with this Rachel Nichols thing, right? It's just like, look, like, we know this power structure, you know, we know that you run things, right? right? And people like you run things like your mother-in-law is the most famous news journalist on television, maybe of all time, other than like, you know, like, uh, what's his name? Um, Who's that guy who who everyone says, I wish so-and-so, I wish the world was like X, you know, who's that guy? Cronkite? Walter Cronkite. Yeah, Walter. <laughs> it's like the famous TV journalist. Who, it's like Walter Cronkite is number one. Who's number two? Like, uh, like Ed Bradley or something like that. Mike Wallace. Like, not even yeah. right. It's like uh, Diane Sawyer might Tom be number Brokaw. two. Yeah, yeah, maybe like Peter Jennings. Tom. Or maybe they're more like Diane Sawyer is in the anyway, top five. That, yeah, say, she's right? big. So, like, if <laughs> you cool. have, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um. um like if you're that person and then you're talking to another super powerful person mm. and you're having that conversation about somebody who is like quite literally, I think better than mm. you, you know, like at, at hosting yeah. and at, at, at like sort of doing the things that the host does on those shows, mm-hmm. you know, Maria Taylor is great mm-hmm. at that. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you're being discussed in that sort of way. Of course she was fucking mad sure. about it. Of course she didn't want her on the show. You know, of course she like, yeah. I would do, I would like every single thing that Maria Taylor did is totally justifiable. And I actually applaud her for it, including asking for $8 million <laughs> a year, you know, seriously. Like, it's just like, fuck right. them, yeah. you know? Right. Um, yeah. 
I'm worth it, first of all, right? Yeah. And secondly, like, what did you just put right. me through, you know? And like, I don't know. I found all of that Wait, to Tammy, be would you, how totally would you react if you heard the secret videotape of them talking about you as a diversity <laughs> hire? I, th- I would probably feel similarly to Jay, like just because it's so humiliating, yeah. you know? Right. I mean, even though you kind of, you have assumptions about the way that they categorize all their yeah. stuff. I think what's really troubling here too is that like, ostensibly Nichols is her, is not her superior. Like ostensibly they are co- just colleagues so Nichols, too. Like, so it's like- older, it's, much more of a veteran in the, so she's kind of her superior. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. No, but, but, but like, it's not no, your boss know. saying it, you she's know, like that's boss. bad enough. Right. And then it's like your friend saying it or whatever you're right. calling, you know, so that's all the more disgusting. And but, talking yeah. about it like she is your boss. Exactly. You know? And that's also offensive, I think. Right. You With know? a like, source. <laughs> right. Maybe offensive is the wrong word, but it would piss me off, you yeah. know, is the thing that I'll say. <laughs> Just be yeah. like, you're not even my boss, you know? Like, well, and also, uh, that's the thing where it's like with Mendelssohn, like I said before, it's just like, what are you yeah. doing? You know? Yeah. What, what's this conversation <laughs> and why are you having it? And like, what do you want this dude to do? Do you want him to like give you advice on how to handle me? Yeah. You know, like I'm your colleague, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah actually, no, now the more I what? think about it, if the analogy wasn't so much like a hiring, but like your colleague shit talking you behind your back. Uh, yeah, I kind of see what you're getting to say. To somebody you need to deal with all the time yeah. too. Like yeah. access to the most famous player in the world. Right, yeah. Right, like yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. did you? Who's like know? the LeBron of like China history? <laughs> Bay Nye or no, something? No, Chinese American. <laughs> oh, uh, Chinese American history. Jonathan, what's Jonathan his Spence. Past? Yeah, yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, Spence. he's retired though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought he had passed away. Oh my gosh, I'm my bad. Oh, who? Yeah, who is the um, LeBron of China? Did you guys <laughs> think about? Is like, did the Jamel Hill thing come up for you guys at all? In, in uh, she left. The, I don't. I don't remember like, why that... she left ESPN though. I thought it was over like Trump tweets. I mean, yeah, it was different because it was more like free speech yeah. type stuff. But I guess I, I just was just reminded of it because I'm like, you know, the general working conditions there, the treatment of yeah. black women, like what, you know, what is it like right. to live inside of this? Beast? Um, I, all, I, all I can really, you know, since I wasn't on the inside with like all these podcasts now and all these like social media stuff, I feel like there's a lot of ESPN people hinting at how big and how much of a Borg ESPN is. And it's like, it's probably just as um, impersonal and humiliating to work there as any like gigantic corporation. It's not, it's not like this like fun loving, mm-hmm. like sports loving right. fraternity vibe. Yeah, that it yeah. was at the beach. Well, maybe right. precisely because it is a friend. Yeah. Vibe. And that, that's what's changed since, right. um, you know, when I was at ESPN, the person who was leading ESPN was this guy, John Skipper, who was like a magazine editor, right? He had worked at Rolling Stone oh, and um, okay. Skipper was, you know, uh, more like he would like talk to you and you know um he tried to solve problems the way that a magazine editor would solve them right and the number two was this guy john walsh i don't know if he's actually the number two but you know sort of the content guy mm-hmm. and uh, walsh was also an old magazine editor right and um their way of doing things is very different they were replaced by this guy jimmy Pitara, who was uh a, a disney uh, executive right okay. and since Pitara's come on They've made ESPN a lot less personal, right? Much mm-hmm. more corporate. That was his job was like clean this right. place up. You know, like, what is this? Like, what are all these like sweetheart contracts that people are given? You know, why why is this person making $400,000 a year to write for ESPN the magazine? Like the person hasn't written in two years. And also, why would anyone make this much money? You know, uh-huh. and so Pataro's 
thing was to basically take the politics out of ESPN, you know, take the personality out of it and turn it into what it became, which is essentially you have a whole bunch of people who are interchangeable, right? And so they're cheap, right? Like hmm. you have, uh, um, you have the games and the f- focus being on the game that they're selling that they paid a lot of money for, right? Which is the NFL and the NBA. And, um, and yeah, like that's the idea, right? Like we want to make it uh, talent cheap. We want to spend a lot of money on programming, meaning the sport of the broadcast. And we want all of the stuff that we do to promote the thing that we are mostly selling, which is ad space during these NFL broadcasts. Um, I don't know. That was, that's sort of the idea behind it. So since he took over, I think it's become much more like that. But when I was there, I would say it wasn't necessarily quite like that. Like it was, yeah. you know. Was that Grantland only or did you stay after too? I was just there for Grantland, but I was there for like three years, Yeah, which to me is like eternity, you know? I mean, the shutting down of Grantland represented that a little bit of that change. No, I mean, that's, I guess like in more like literary journalism circles, that's how I often see it read. Well, Grantland got shut down because Bill got fired. Um, you know. But why was he fired? Uh, because he wouldn't stop uh, talking about the commissioner of the NFL. And the oh, okay. concussion. But ESPN went from like covering yeah. sports to like being sports at some point. And it probably has like all the I same, all, this, all the baggage you would assume of like, because like their job now is to keep sports alive. It's not just to report on it. So I think, right. Yeah. And oh, yeah, that's so interesting. there's still yeah. good reporters at ESPN. But they're sort of sinecured away from everything uh, else. Hmm. So like Don Van Natta and Seth Wickersham are great reporters by any standard. Any any field of reporting you want to talk about, they're great. You know? Are they in broadcast or in print or what well, are they? I think Don has a television show now, but okay. um, you know, like they broke a ton of big NFL stories that were not flattering mm-hmm. to the league through okay. ESPN. Right. So some people are given a little bit of leeway. Mm-hmm. But generally the point of the network is to sell what the network yeah. sells you yeah. know and like it kind of makes sense and so within a purely logic brained way it's hard to debate but within that you know you do have certain things that happen which is you know basically something like this where you know they have no way to handle or manage a dispute like this and that would be the last thing that i would say about this is that like the way that espn responded in every single way was like it's like catastrophic you know this idea that like you're not going to resolve this thing that they were having like basically people pre-tape their segments so that they wouldn't have to like work together and stuff like that and then like you know i saw some people like blaming maria taylor for that and just like no (laughs) like why should she have to work with with rachel nichols you know like maybe (laughs) rachel nichols should not demand to be on these shows anymore you know like like come on like you know like maria is totally in her right to demand this stuff you know and then like i don't know like i I just think that like espn just handled it about as poorly as possible yeah and i mean the implication of the article was they handled it in a way that was favoritist showing favoritism to rachel as the sort of incumbent long-standing person um within the within the company um, does it does it change things that this was like a secret private recording like conversation that was not yes I yeah. think so yeah so I mean does that lessen the impact of it or the severity of it <laughs> I know right um, I assume that everyone in their text messages is like shitting on me and everyone else they know right now you know like <laughs> 
every colleague is doing this to every colleague. Text, what, what happens when my private texts get well, hacked? That's why, I don't know, maybe, I, tell me if you think this is like the wrong way to think about it, but that's why I think, that's why I feel like I want, I think that the focus of it should be on not so much on what Rachel Nichols did, right? I think Rachel Nichols' privacy was violated, yeah. you know? But really on like, what is this, like how does this feel for other people who work in this field yeah. and in other fields, you know? Like what does this confirm? Mm -hmm. And does that, you know, how does that make you feel? You know, mm -hmm. not to be so emotional about it, right? But like, and I don't know, it feels shitty. Like I, I felt, yeah. you know, I got mad. I thought of five things that had happened in my career when I read it and I was fucking furious about them all over again. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, interesting, right. And I think everyone feels like, I don't know, isn't that how, I think that's how most people, most reasonable people who are mad about this and expressing their anger on Twitter or whatever, yeah. I think that's what they were saying. Mm -hmm. I think that's like, I don't know. Like I think being like Rachel Nichols should be fired, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's, you know, whatever. Her career is over anyway, I think. You know, so uh, I don't know what firing her would do. So do you guys think Taylor is going to – what's going to happen with her contract, do you think? Suggest – the article oh. suggests she's leaving. Yeah, I think I she's know. Leaving. It didn't seem and to imply that, right? People have kind of tried to connect the dots on social media that there was this random hit piece, kind of hit piece in the New York Post last week. Right? Yeah. That how yeah. she was, like, being greedy and demanding too much money. And I, people are suggesting right. that yeah. that was ESPN trying to, like, control the narrative. Before the story came right, out. Right, they leaked it. They leaked that story right. out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh. yeah. No, it, it's yeah. true. That's what they would do. <laughs> That's what they would do. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. So it's all so skeezy. Uh, <laughs> she's fine, though. She's, I think, um, I mean, I don't know. We're, I'm just, she'll be like a GMA host with yeah. Kennedy. There's like three other sports. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Me, so. She has places to go. I think she's going to a big network, and I think she's going to be paid a lot. And I think she's going to do great because I think she's. Very, very, I mean, she's great at her job, you know, yeah. and it's, uh, and um, I don't know what will happen to Rachel Nichols, but uh, I can't imagine that they're going to put her on television very soon. Although I imagine that she's on schedule to do the finals, yeah, right? very awkward. I mean, her last tweet was, see you in Phoenix. Oh, really? <laughs> I was like, really? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the last part of this that I don't get is that they must have known that this story was coming for at least six months. You I was know? confused by that. I too. knew that the story was coming for four months, you know, and I'm not and I'm not like yes, I see, maybe I should yeah. I'll cut that out. <laughs> but like, you know, like um <laughs> uh yeah, how did she not like how did they not yeah. prepare better for this? And you know, it's strange. The timing of the story is strange. It was put out on a holiday, you know, which usually indicates something. I know. But um Man, it was a huge story. It was like every any right. I know. I don't know. From outside of basketball, did it seem huge to you, Tammy? Like in terms of just like seeing it everywhere. Yeah, I mean, definitely on social, and I think per your guys's point, like it, I saw it refracted through different people's careers and fields. So I th found that really interesting. Like in science and academia, you know, people were having these kind of PTSD type like reflections of like, oh yeah, that was me. Um, but yeah, I. I guess like the proximity to the finals part, I found it kind of just confusing in the article because the recording is so old and then like all yeah. of this stuff is now hitting yeah. the fan. Yeah. Like, um, I don't know, Tammy, do you think that there is like a, you know, did you feel any sort of, uh, affinity or sympathy for what Nichols was saying though, about like, you know, they just take jobs for women away <laughs> from other women or when it's time to promote a woman, they'll just 
bash another, you know, they'll take down another woman. Yeah, I think I felt, I, I think I felt a tinge of that. I think it's tricky because she seems like such an unlikable person. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but yeah. Which is the I, opposite of like what people <laughs> think about her before, you know? I see. Like she's like sort of the likable, uh, ebullient, I think is the correct <laughs> word if I was going to come yes. up with like the exact right word. Effusive is not quite right. I think of, right? Because there is like kind of a bubbly, yeah. like, I'm like, like kind of happy vibe to her, you know? So uh-huh. bullying is the right word. I felt, yeah, I mean, again, I think I felt really, my, my first reaction was a lot of anger towards Mendelssohn. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. You're not the only person I know who said that, and the other person I know who said that is also a woman who yeah. works uh, in our field, and, mm-hmm. uh, in media and journalism. And um, yeah. Wasn't was the Black Lives like, Matter line that offended you, or was it something? Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. The one yeah. that was just grouping together all social justice. Right. Like, why do I have to deal with this in my life? Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Like, first of all, also, you're LeBron James. You're exactly. So and also, is LeBron going to say something? I mean, it's kind of disgusting. You know? Right, right. I bet I guarantee LeBron will not say anything about this, uh-huh. you know, okay. because uh, I don't know. I, th- I think that, you know, LeBron probably loves this guy. Right? Yeah. Um. Andy, what? Have, okay, so the last thing would be Andy. Like you know, you started talking about this thing. What What do you think a solution would be for? Right, we are in this time where people are hired, mm-hmm. and we must be honest about it, they're hired to improve diversity. Yeah. And I think that we can argue, and I believe this. You know that this is a good uh-huh. thing. Mm-hmm. It improves institutions, and uh, you know, and I think that a lot of these places are hiring as unqualified as a person might be, mm-hmm. right? The other ways in which people hire is even worse. Right. You know, nepotism, <laughs> right, right, right? Like, this is my friend from Princeton, all this shit. <laughs> like, it's not like the person that you're hiring, even if you're just like, we need an X person. It's not like that person. Like, and then also just like, right? Like, I also think that hiring standards are pretty much tailor-made to have a certain type of person yeah. come in. And that person is not going to be somebody who's like working class or somebody who is from any other background other than like a white person went to prison, yeah. right? So um, with all that said, like, how, how do we get ourselves out of this where it's just like, well, you can't ever talk about this in any way except, right. you know, sort of glowing praise. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Like I was kind of thinking my, maybe my industry is different than your industry in the sense that like I'm, you know, you're, as reporters, you all are, like, are expected to cover everything, right? And not just like Asian American stuff or Asian stuff. Whereas the Academy is much more... What's the word like fragmented? No, no, no. We are given beats. Yeah, okay. So. But you don't you don't want to be, yeah. right? We're less specialized than yeah. you guys, but we still so, are sort of specialized. Yeah, and Tammy and I are actually like unusually unspecialized okay. for journalists. <laughs> True. Right. So like yeah. the way places where this doesn't matter, for example, is that like the Washington Post number one White House correspondent is like a Korean right. woman, right? Um what's mm-hmm. her? Sungmin is Sung-min her name. Kim. Sungmin mm-hmm. Kim. And she is not I don't think she is racialized in that same way, Mm-mm. right? Because she's a beat reporter. Uh, I think same thing is true of like Katie Benner at the New York Times, who I also think is yeah. Korean, right? Katie Benner, I think is Korean. Um, you know, she's not racialized yeah. in the same way. Um, yeah, and I, but I think yeah. in academia, that's tough because, you know, again, this is the industry that gave us Jessica Krug, right? And and Rachel right, Bromberg, right. to say that there is a real strong incentive. And Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I was thinking about that this week and I got mad again. And I was like, Elizabeth Warren did the yeah. same thing. She really yeah. did. She really um, did. Okay, anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I guess it, like in, in my, the conversations in academia might be slightly different. Ow, ow, because, 
there's this whole, uh, you know, I'm not like downplaying this, this whole discussion about like, we need someone from X group to talk about, to study and talk about X group in a way that's probably different than a lot of these other industries. Right. In academia, my general attitude is, I remember very early on, it was like an older female professor. Not, not when I worked with, I was just talking to her. She was saying like, I'm fine being a diversity hire. I want more diversity hires. Like we should use it to our advantage. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the pressure that institutions feel to hire more women or more people of color. Um, and that's kind of been my attitude. Like we're not, we're kind of far from the situation of um, worrying about, do we have too many diversity hires? Um, because it does, because the institutions are still overwhelmingly like too white and too male. And um, at least in my field, I do feel like, yeah, we're like, that's not a, that's not a real problem yet. You know, like, is there too much diversity overrunning the industry? So you're like calling for like a reclaimed <laughs> diversity I, hire. I think, I, <laughs> I don't know. I have a very like cynical attitude towards this, which is like, I just assume, yeah, I mean, I understand the scenario where it's like a colleague of yours behind your back is trying to shit talk you. Yes, that would piss me off for sure. But I do think it's like, we shouldn't necessarily, like, I don't think anyone would run away from talking about what demographic group do I represent to my bosses or to the my employer. I think any person mm. of color or woman minority fully understands how they are seen that way. Um, right, right. And I guess like it just kind of depends on the context. Obviously, if someone just brings it up out of the blue and is like, oh, you're just the diversity, like that would be like, well, <laughs> fuck you, you know? But if it's like yeah. uh, among someone you trust, you know, someone you, you think is like sympathetic to you and general you know, diversity hiring yeah like it's a good on mm-hmm. it's, it's much better to be honest about it than to pretend like we don't see race or sex or any of that right 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 mm-hmm. those yeah. would you feel differently though andy if the person who was talking about you um was using was basically saying i've worked really hard and i don't want these you know and i know that we're doing diversity and i support diversity yeah. but i don't want this person to to interfere with all the hard work like because the assumption there and i think or the inclination the implication there is that this person did not work hard right like it is there i think right like i think it is used pejoratively by 95 99 percent of the time and i'm not sure if that can be undone and i also think that it's a lot to ask of people to basically also have to carry this conversation while also dealing you know like uh, trying to do their job. But right? I do, I mean, I, I kind of was saying this earlier, I do feel like we might be walking backwards into a position where we fixate on who worked harder between two people right. when the broader, and this is like what Nichols and Mendelssohn are trying to spin it as, right? This is a conversation about zero-sum politics and kind of the artificial mm-hmm. scarcity of these jobs and how both That's people true. should have right. jobs and right. we shouldn't put them against right. each other. And I think that might be the more enlightened way to think about this stuff. But, you know, you know, it depends on like whether or not there actually are jobs in your industry. Um, and if. Right. And ESPN is the one that did create that zero right. sum atmosphere. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I think having referendums on who worked harder, it might not be the might not be the direction we want to go. Um, right. No, I don't yeah. think so either. I mean, Lord, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds awful, <laughs> especially like when the person. <laughs> saying I work so hard is like the, you know, has every advantage and connection right. in the, in the book. Like that's the part that I also like got mad about that where I was yeah. just like, are you kidding me? Right. You know, we all work hard. Right. 
Right. Um, the people who have connections are the ones whose hard work pays off in big right. ways, right? That's just how the world works. And like, please don't tell me that's not how the world works. Um, Tammy, last question yeah. for you. What I, I had this thought, which is just like, okay, what happened? Does it, how does this happen differently if ESPN is a union shop? Because hmm. like it did sort of cross my mind that like, you know, uh, a lot of this might have been handled differently if, you know, ESPN, first of all, it's almost impossible to, to think of it as a, you know, the salaries are so high, you know? Yeah. It's such a, and obviously like the TV talent would not be in the same union as like the people running the cameras, right? But like, let's say that TV talent was unionized in some sort of way. Does this, does this shake out differently? Yeah. Well, I wonder, so do you think none of those people are in SAG after? Because I did wonder whether I don't they might so. have some union representation, but um, certainly the person who was fired, you know, seems like they or were demoted. Yeah. Demoted. Right. Yeah. We're essentially exercising both free speech and potentially like a critique of workers' rights based on race and gender. And that, you know, should be a protected right that you're basically releasing this in, in that context. And so, um, yeah, like if you were unionized, you could, you would be able to quote unquote grieve that meaning going through like a grievance procedure as okay. a sort of protected activity. I do feel for that person a lot. Anyway, sports. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our sports show. Talk. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening to sports talk. <laughs> this is a drive time. We needed a show. new name for a podcast. The Phillies are losing to the Mets 7 to 5 in the eighth <laughs> inning. Um, you know, uh, taking you home for the rest of the way will be uh, whoever. Sugman Kim and, <laughs> and Katie Benner. <laughs> this is Asian American Sports Radio Hour. Oh um, if you'd like to uh, support the show, you can either sign up for our Substack at goodbye.substack.com. There is an option to sign up for $5 a month. You will get access to bonus episodes and introduction into our Discord server, which is still going strong somehow. I don't know how these people find the energy. It's great. Um, or you can sign up at patreon.com slash ttsgpod. ttsgpod is our Twitter handle. You can DM us or you can, you know, add us or whatever. And if you want to send us an email, it is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Andy and Tammy, thank you for the time on this long weekend. Uh, this will be out tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Goodbye. Bye, guys.